History Session 13, Rabbi Bleiweiss, a question about Ehud and Eglon. So uh, I was just citing sources, so Rabbi Rosen, my beloved colleague, was, uh, was pointing out at lunch uh, some issues about them, and I looked it up in Rus Raba and found there that when Ehud comes forward and is about to stab the king, as we learned here, so um, the king recognizes in Ehud, I mean, you have to remember, this is Melech Moab, uh, he descends from Balak, so he understands uh, the history. There's a lot of water under the bridge with these people. He also descends from Lot, and uh, he sees the godless in Klal Yisrael, even though his own nation is despicable and, and, uh, and, and perverse, but he recognizes the greatness in Klal Yisrael, and so he stands for Hashem. And because he stands for Hashem, the Medrash says he got a special prize, Hashem rewards even the lower level people with prizes. Anybody know his prize? That's a pretty obvious one if you've been following the lineage. Um, he is the Alter Zaidi of David Amelech. He will, because his daughter is Rus, and from Rus, uh, her, her great grandson is David. And uh, his, that his line, that's one of the greatest rewards a person could ever have, to have auspicious, uh, important people to come out of him to do Kiddush Hashem. We see that everything is interconnected. Did that answer your question, Aaron? Yeah. From before? Fantastic. The uh, next shofate is maybe not even a shofate at all. He is the one blight, the one taint on this entire period of time, what we call the shoftim, the judges. Um, he is the um, son, or some would say the illegitimate son, of Gidon by the name of Avi Melech. Avi Melech. He's the only leader during this period of about 400 years that's otherwise pure and righteous. Remember we said the meritocracy where the uh, leadership rotated, uh, where, where uh, there was little political intrigue and struggle. He's the exception to the rule. He seized power. He calls to the community of Shechem. And Shechem, as the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us, is... Um, is, is um, it's designated for all kinds of violence and destruction. That's the nature of, uh, of Shechem, and we see it from the beginning of the Torah with Adina and the destruction of the, of the community of Shechem at the hands of Shimon and Levi, but doesn't stop there. It continues in our episode. He calls to the people of, of Shechem, and he convinces them that he would be a better ruler than all of the sons of Gidon. Who's in competition for this title? All the sons, and how many other sons are there? Ooh, just 70. You remember this? Gidon, Gidon had lots of wives, and, 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 and as many, uh, he had 70 uh, sons from, from uh, his many wives. How do you keep track of all your sons that way? With great difficulty. Right, he's the, he's the, he's the quintessential uh, father who says, uh, um, yeah, you over there, you know, give me the washing cup. Like no, Gidon was, was a tzaddik, though. He would have known. I don't know exactly how. Um, Right. So uh, he convinces the people that he would be the best of all of the shof- of all of his uh, siblings, the best, the best kind of uh, ruler. They agree. They hire reckless men, and the reckless men conspire in a place south of Shechem, in a place that's identified as Ofra, to murder all sixty-nine of uh, of Gidon's sons, the brothers of Avimelech. Only one, the youngest, hides, and only this one, his name is Yosam, escapes. And there's a, another famous image 
he escapes, he, he goes up to the top of uh, Har Grizim, where we received the bracha a couple generations ago, uh, right above Shechem, and he cries out a parable in which he uh, paints a whole scene where the metaphors are pretty clear, but also with a nuanced meaning. He warns Avimelech and his henchmen and, and all the people following them that with Avimelech as ruler, they will be consumed in the end by fire. He winds up fleeing to a place called Be'er in fear of his life, but he survives. Um, Radak has an interesting point about, the, about Avi, Radak being one of the great commentaries on, the, on Navi, on Tanakh. Um, Radak, one of the reasons for his greatness, we'll meet him in the uh, Middle Ages when we get there, but the Radak had manuscripts, had copies of many, many early commentaries on the Tanakh, many of which are lost to us, but we have them because he filters them into his own commentary. So he's one of the primary Mepharshim on the page, and he comments that Avimelech never got over being rejected, uh, but being the rejected son. His mother had been the one Pilegesh, the concubine, the not quite wife of Gidon, and so he was second, second status, and we see a certain amount, I mean, certainly if we learn, if we derive Moser from the Tanakh, we can see a lot of human psychology. People who feel inferior without getting into Chas V'Sholom, any modern psychobabble, but on a very straightforward human nature kind of a, uh, a level, we see the people who don't get proper treatment, who feel constantly inferior, have to sometimes compensate. Another pattern we're going to detect in history, this is mostly among non-Jews, we find this, that a lot of the biggest villains um, in history were relatively short of stature. And what some people call the Napoleon Bonaparte complex, there's something to it. That sometimes people who feel insecure as a kid grow up and try to overcompensate and show a lot of bravado superficially to mask whatever's going on internally. Yes, are you? You know, the Napoleon syndrome is actually very prevalent. I missed the key phrase in the what? The Napoleon syndrome. It's I've actually seen it before. I had a principal who was, who was maybe five foot one. Okay. And he was a very he tried to impose himself on everything. He was much harsher than really. But he's five foot. It's not it's, always true. It's not only with short people. It's with people with all kinds. And listen, we all have our pecula or all, all of our bag of uh, no, but uh, of. Had has been short and imposing. Okay. There is something there. We, we find it in history as well. Um, Radak says this is what's true of Avimelech. We have to especially empower, beware of angry men. I mean, you don't have to stop at Napoleon, probably the most familiar image to us in our days. Adolf Hitler. But they're, they're, not the, they're, not the, they're not the first people to be like that. Um, even more famously, if you know your history, you, don't, you know who Nebuchadnezzar is? Yeah. We'll meet him too. Similar, similar dynamic. And, and they're, yes. Oh, short and, and awkward. And he spoke, his voice emitted a sound like a high squealing bird. Right? So, so there is something going on there. Paro. Paro is another classic example of this syndrome. Yes. Has a stone that's... Are you, are you the one that in a crowd will like refer to their jokes by their punchline? You can't steal my thunder here. Oh, fine. We're getting there. I just remember, I like wouldn't show you in fifth grade. Oh, fine. Good, good, good. No, very good. That's, that's, we're, we're here. This is it. Okay. Um, to finish off the story of Avimelech, 
the, the parable that Yosem, his half-brother, cries out, ultimately comes true. He rules the Jews for three years. Some say he's not really uh, ever recognized as a proper shofet. And um, ultimately, his own henchmen from Shem turn on him, which happens, because if you're all in it for the intrigue, then the other guy who supported you looks around and said, hey, I could be king too. So they, they no longer support you. They set up an ambush. There's fighting, there's a skirmish. Avimelech is, in, is encamped against a small village called Tevitz. He's right outside the uh, city gates. And a woman, this is what you recall, I think, Ilan, a woman sends a millstone on his head from the tower. She throws it down and it crushes him, but doesn't kill him. And so he summons his young arms bearer, uh, which is a scene that's somewhat um, foreboding. We're going to see a similar scene in the future. Do you know what I'm thinking of? Who also almost dies and, and yeah, very good. Um, Shaul, Shaul HaMelech, we'll see a similar pattern. Um, so Avimelech calls this young arms bearer and he, he asks him to, to, to kill him, to finish the job. He dies and with his death we find the first recorded instance of, well, it's suicide, it's assisted suicide. He doesn't do the final deed, but he certainly commissions it. And, and uh, nobody's, gonna, nobody's going to um, disobey such a request. So that ends the short rule of Avimelech. He doesn't say he's not killed by a woman, right? Right. He says that explicitly in the Pasuk. He said, it shouldn't be said that I was, I was felled by a woman. Of course, ironic that we tell the whole story and we emphasize that exact aspect of it. Uh, so, you know, just be careful, careful what you wish for. Um, the next judges, you probably know by name. Anybody want to guess? Okay, I'll give it away. They are Tola ben Pua and Yair Hagiladi. And the fact that you didn't guess probably just makes you normal. Um, they are, there's nothing said about them. There virtually is no mention of them in Chazal. We know the Psukim tell us that they're Shoftim for 23 and 22 years respectively. But Victor Miller has a beautiful comment about them. Sure. Tola ben Pua and Yoir Hagiladi. The fact that there's a no comment about them reflects the exalted nature of, uh, of the nation. Yeah, not the same person. Some of the people in the nation are lax, become lax in their observance. Some of them become lax in their observance, and um, Hashem sends the nation of Ammon against them as a rebuke. So the entire nation, which is mostly innocent, right? Now, some of the people become lax, but the entire nation takes responsibility, which you see a pattern already. Um, they take the rebuke to heart. They're not, they're not defensive at all. You know, usually today, somebody gives rebuke, and what's the reaction? People say, not me, it's your problem. Right? People, uh, people don't take rebuke all that well. Um, it's very different. What's that again? People name their kid Tola. Not that I've ever heard of. People name their Yair. Yair, but there are a few other Yairs. There's a Yair. We have Ben Menasha. That's earlier in the Torah. Right. Um, in the modern is Israeli state, uh, generally secular, but not just, they often will draw from, from biblical names, not so much a, uh, 
sadly, not necessarily as a way, because they, they see spiritual role models, but because they like the name, which makes, then it follows then that they come up with names of famous Rishayim as, as, as common names. Omri, for example. In a few generations, we're going to meet Omri. Omri is a bad guy, no question. And uh, Omri is a fairly common modern Hebrew name. So uh, Yair didn't, doesn't seem to have great distinction, um, but okay, there would be later Yairs. Chovas Yair is one of the great Acharonim. There are, there are some great Yairs who emerge. Okay, the, uh, they're not defensive. They, take, they, they respond with a massive wave of tshuva. They purge themselves of Avodazara, and they, um, they, they await battle in... Um, with Amon and Gilad. And the only thing that they need right now is a Shofet to come and lead the battle. And the next man for the job also comes from Gilad. Anybody know who he is? Gilad. He's the son himself of a harlot. Of the different Shof team, he's probably from the, um, let's say, the most modest pedigree. Uh, not, not, not from a very honorable background. Uh, again, his, his mother was a harlot, prostitute. Um, his half-brothers, meaning his father had different wives, and the other wives were more reputable, uh, so his half-brothers drive him away. His name is Yiftach, Yiftach Giladi. He comes with what we call a kupad shratzim, so, uh, which is the Chazal's expression where he has a bag of worms, bat, or we, the expression in English we say, skeletons in his closet. We like leaders like that, you know why? They're easier to keep in check. They don't get too um, inflated views of themselves and their abilities. In contrast, beware of leaders who feel themselves to be the next Mashiach or you know the next the next uh, you know, savior of their generation. I'm thinking of self-righteous. From my in my mind, I always think of Jimmy Carter as an example of such things. If you follow American politics, Jimmy Carter feels to himself that he's going to save humanity and. Um, He's got quite a mixed legacy, that Jimmy fellow. And it, and, and it doesn't help him that he has, he has the sense of self-righteousness. Certainly not, not, not the best friend of uh, Kuala Yisrael. Perhaps, perhaps you can say such a thing about Barack Obama. I, I, I can accept that. You can say such a thing about any other power. I don't think so. I don't think you see the same self-righteousness always. I mean, you know, you can, you can say what you will about other, other leaders. that They don't always have this particular dynamic. I don't think Bill Clinton had a, you know, he was, he was, he had his problems, and I don't think he had, I mean, I don't think, I don't think he came off with this kind of glowing, saint-like uh, aura. I didn't try to either. W didn't either, for that matter, if you're talking about American politics. W. George. George W. No, they tried, they both tried to relate to the common. Yeah, fine, they're other, they're, they're, they didn't do this. So my point is that, you know, by us, we like leaders who have a background and can kept, be kept in check as a result of that. That's certainly Yiftach. Um, Chazal say he was, on the one hand, Kal Shebekalim, like the lightest of the light. Um, he was, in other words, not necessarily a um, very uh, prestigious Talmud Chacham. In fact, um, even so, he's the, he's the illustration, Chazal tell us in the Gemara Rosh Hashanah, defer to the Gedolim. Whatever generation you live in, defer to your Gedolim. By the way, every generation gets the Gedolim we deserve. And, um, and the expression for that throughout Chazal, and in fact Rashi brings this on the Pasuk, 
is Yiftach Bedoro Kishmuel Bedoro. Yiftach in his generation is like Shmuel in his generation, and I guess they're, it's used clearly as polar opposites. Yiftach's generation was on a lower level, and uh, Shmuel on a higher level. So uh, still, still, he's a good person who means well, and his major claim to fame and infamy at the same time somehow is he's going to lead the Jews in their fight against Ammon, and he winds up having a lengthy uh, discourse with Ammon. They, uh, he reminds them, he goes back into the days of the Torah, he reminds them of the long history that they've had. Who's Ammon from? Who's, who's Ammon's ancestor? Lotz. It was the younger of the two daughters, um, who names it names it a uh, more modest name Moab you remember was the was was his, was his other brother not so modestly named he's from dad advertising the incest um, and the younger brother younger, younger daughter conceals that names her son Amon neither had been the Kali Israel's best friend and uh, Yiftach reminds this reminds them of this and when he comes back he's prepared to go to war against them and he makes a vow. And it's, he's usually the one we think of when we think, be careful what you say. Has anybody here ever learned Mesechus Nadarim? So uh, one thing, you should learn Mesechus Nadarim, you should learn Mesechus Hashem Alav Shas. One of the things that comes up when people learn uh, Nadarim, I remember this the first year when we learned it in Yeshiva, uh, we were learning Nadarim, and suddenly when you really have your consciousness raised, raised about how Nadarim work and how prevalent it is that people say, people make vows even without intending it, um, suddenly everybody stopped talking that year. You made you utterly self-conscious about your speech. Uh, Yiftach is somebody, is, is somebody who, by example, we should pause before we speak, before we make any promises. Have you know Yiftach's vow? Infamous vow. He vows that when he's, if he's successful against Amon, and he means well, he's L'shem Shemayim, he, uh, he's a man with livestock, and he says, the first thing to come to me from my house, I will sacrifice to Hashem, assuming it would be some sheep, perhaps a cow, even a little benyona, uh, benyona right? He'll, he'll, he'll offer them as a sacrifice. He goes out to war, he wins, and when he returns home, the first thing to come out to him from his house, his daughter, who's an only child. She emerges dancing with timbrels, uh, and he says, oh no. He rents his clothes. She goes to the mountains for two months, bewailing her status. And then something very strange happens. And this is the Gemara. Who's learned the Gemara in Tainis? Gemara Tainis tells us, you know, there really is a solution for these kinds of things. What do you do if you find yourself, let's say hypothetically, you know, this could happen to you, Aaron Friedman. You never know. Let's say hypothetically, you became the Shofet of Klal Yisrael, and you made a vow you didn't intend. What might you perhaps do to get out of it? Go to the Sanhedrin, and he, in this time, in this generation, he actually, the Gemara indicates, he could have gone even one step easier. He could have gone to the Kohen Gadol. Who's the Kohen Gadol still in these days? Long life? Pinchas. Pinchas ben Elazar. He could have gone to Pinchas and said, would you please nullify my nether? He could have done that and lived happily ever after, as, more importantly, his daughter would have done as well. But he didn't. 
Conversely, Pinchas, it was famous, it was known that Yiftach made this vow. Pinchas knew that he could have gone and told him, do this, and, you know, let me do Hataras Nadarim, as we're all about to do next era of Rosh Hashanah. Um, and neither of them went to the other. Right. In their relative, now, they did it the same Shemayim. Each one thought that it was inappropriate. Pinchas is going, Gadol felt, he should come to me. Yiftach, as Shofet, felt, Pinchas should come to me. So neither went to the other. And the daughter, well, what happens to the daughter? Um, she is either offered as a sacrifice, or alternately, that's a very difficult shot, what are we thinking? Uh, or alternately, she just never remains married, and as roughly Menu says, uh, somebody without children is as if they're a dead person. How does she have to live in, the, in like the mountains? She lives in the mountains of Israel, according to that shot. In the end, they're each punished. That's so stupid. They're all self-pride out of the way. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. That seems to be the simple message from the story. Uh, beca- uh, it seems like it's about self-pride, as Arye says. I want to suggest that um, pride, it may not be explicit pride. Here, they're working on protocol. I think these are great people. So to project ourselves onto them, I think, is a mistake. From you and me, probably would have been pride, what uh, the, the word David just used, gaiva. I don't think gaiva is appropriate for Yiftah or Pinchas. They're too, lo- they're too great people for that. But I would say that sometimes you can stay so much um, in, the, in, in the proper etiquette, the proper protocols, that you could forget the right thing to do. I think that's the way. That's the way I understand it. Be careful of following the rules too closely. Sometimes you don't, you, you 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 become you have too much what we say midas adin, too much attribute of justice, and not enough of midas arachamim of the attribute of, of, of uh, compassion. In the end, they're both punished. Pinchas loses a notch of his ruach hakodesh, his divine inspiration, um, and Yiftach is cursed, and he has for the rest of his life a certain kind of tsaraas, but it's a unique kind of leprosy that wherever he would go, he would lose a piece of his body until ultimately he died. He'd go around Eretz Israel and drop, drop a finger. That seems like it could go very quickly, like he sort of died. It does sound like, like that. And as Ilan says in Medrash, be careful in learning Medrash, what does it really mean? Clearly, there was something, I mean, the, um, the Medrash indicates that he was, he was almost on a supernatural level punished that he lost a bit of himself because he couldn't, he couldn't see to do the proper um, act. The next judge is a very interesting figure who's announced in Sefer Shoftim by the name of Ibtsan of Bethlehem. But you and I know him of him much more famously by a different name. The name is not given in Shoftim, but it, we, we see it elsewhere. Ibts, Ibts, no, Ibts, Ibtsan has another name, a.k.a. Boaz. Boaz. Who's Boaz? He was a shofet, most certainly. Uh, Ruth, the husband of Ruth, and uh, even more famously, the progenitor of David Melech. So he's the next shofet. Um, yeah, well, let's do this. Uh, Boaz, great-grandfather. Boaz will beget Ovad, who begets Yishai, who begets David. Right? So you got, you've got Boaz whose father, Salmon, and his uncles, Elimelech, you're going to love the next one, Ploni Almoni, that's really his name, that's where we get the expression Ploni Almoni from, um, and Naomi's father, how are you on the book of Ruth? 
right? So the book of Ruth, they're all related. It goes Naomi's father, and she marries Elimelech. Sure. Yeah, let's keep track of this because it's confusing. Um, so we have like this. You have Salmon has begets Boaz. Okay, and then Salmon's brother is Elimelech. Okay, um, his his brother is Ploni uh, Almoni, and um, this is an unnamed Avi Naomi, who obviously has a daughter named Naomi, right? So Naomi marries her uncle Elimelech, and these are all four brothers. Clear? Okay. Um, this is the, this is this is their relationship. Um, they are all the son. They are all the sons of anybody. Nachshon ben Avinadav. Aminadav, excuse me, Aminadav. Nachshon who dove into the Yamsu first. Yeah. How are they all? How is he still alive to have all these kids? Well, they had longevity, but we're not that far removed from Yamsu. We're a few generations into the into the um, into the Shof team, and some of them had what we say Arichus Yamin. This one is not so much a stretch. There will be other times in history that there's more of a stretch in working out the years. Um, by the way, this instance we mentioned this before, Ab Elimelech marrying his niece Naomi is similar to um, we saw Osniel marrying his niece Achsa, and the Kuzari. I'm learning the Kuzari in the mornings. The Kuzari brings it as a great refutation against the Karaites. See, the Karaites have their own reading of the Torah that they make up since they reject Chazal. They they, they say that they go only with the simple shot of the Torah. And, um, and for some reason, they, say, they claim that it's forbidden for an uncle to marry his niece, even though there's no such pasuk anywhere in the Torah. Um, and so the Kuzari gives a great refutation, because they don't just go with the Torah. The, 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 um, the Karaites also um, read, the, read the Tanakh. So if this is from the Tanakh, and clearly it's mutter, and it's explicit that an uncle is marrying his niece in the Tanakh, they should uphold it as a legitimate thing to do. Maybe it's brought in there so you realize that you shouldn't do it. And that's but that's not Chazal what you just said. We, the Chazal says it's perfectly acceptable for an uncle to marry his niece. What? I know, I know, but no, even, no, 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 the, 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 the Kuzari is using this as a refutation because even according to their own position, where they do read the, what they claim is the, the Bible literally, the Bible itself upholds this as a legitimate thing. And it's explicit that these are uncles and nieces in the, in the, in the text, in the verses themselves. Yeah, so I'm saying maybe it's explicitly stating that to show, oh, maybe they shouldn't have done that. No, it doesn't say that because it just states it as a fact. And if it, was, if it was illegitimate, there should be some criticism. The fact that these leaders of the Jews and the Karaites would have to admit that these are leaders and role models, they, that, they, that they do this, it must be acceptable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be leaders and role models. Um, anybody learn Sefer Rus here? Sefer Rus takes place during this period. So this is our time to address it in, in history. Sefer Rus, one of the things... How, do you have your timeline? 
Okay, always useful to, to, to bring it, to have it, make reference. You can do what Aaron does and bring it in a notebook. Right, so there's the timeline. You can, you can do it. We are already um, somewhere under 200 years into Eretz Yisrael, into Eretz Canaan. And it's becoming Eretz Yisrael now. Sefer Rus, one of the major things that we find in Sefer Rus is, again, to complete the picture, just what a high level and what a high spiritual level we find. We find Shem Hashem Hayashogur Befihem, meaning they were always speaking about Hashem, which means their consciousness was spiritual. You know, we're all kind of striving for the same thing. We'd like to infuse our lives with a higher dimension. Most of our lives are, are, tend to be petty and trivial, uh, but we're shooting for something high. These people, it wasn't just superficial. It wasn't just, I mean, even though it's a good thing to say, Baruch Hashem and Yitz Hashem and, and so on, but everything that they, that they thought of, they saw in context of Hashem. I'll use a few illustrations, but you can find many more. For example, when Naomi hears that the famine ends... Do you remember the basic outline of the story? Nomi and Elimel, there's a famine, they go with their two sons over to Moab. Yes, and then the, the, their two sons marry Rus and Orpah in Moab, then the three men die. When they initially go there, they go to, to, to Moab, um, so Nomi hears um, at the end, not that the famine ended, but the Lush of the Pasuk is Hashem Pakad Es Amo. Hashem has um, has supplied his nation and, and taken care of them, right? Not, not just that they're saved, but seeing it purely in the context, context of Hashkocha Pratis, um, we find Rus saying that, may Hashem deal with me even severely if anything but death separates us. She promises her mother-in-law famously. Um, Boaz greets his reapers out in the field. He says to them, I mean, you know, this is famous greeting, Hashem imachem, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a greeting that, is, that people use nowadays. And they respond, you know this? Because you should know this. If, again, remember part of what we're doing here is all the things you need to know to be Jewish. Uh, you find people greeting one another this way. The greeting is Hashem imachem. And the response, even these salt of the earth workers um, are so, are so um, close with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, are so conscious uh, of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, they respond, Yivarechcha Hashem. You ever hear that before? greeting and responding that way? Okay. Bezrash Hashem, you'll be zochim to hear that kind of a greeting. Um, right? You should know who you're standing before always, and these people really did. Um, what's the purpose of the famine? According to the Gemara and Baba Basra, when they leave the famine, Hashem orchestrates all of history for the tzaddikim. That was a claim we made at the beginning, and we see it in action here. The famine was meant in order purely and singularly to bring Rus into Klal Yisrael. Had there not been a family, famine, the family wouldn't have moved to Moab, and the Shinnach wouldn't have been made. Um, so then you think, why were Elimelech and his sons punished? Why did they all die? You, you, ever, you ever learned this? It was a test, and they shouldn't have left Eretz Yisrael. Um, I don't know if you know this, but when you're in Eretz Yisrael, you're Mekayim, not only the immense mitzvah of Kibush and Yishu Ba'aretz, but every other mitzvah that you're fulfilling counts, as the Ramban would say, I'm paraphrasing, some thousand times what, it, what the same mitzvah would be kept in Chutzlaretz, outside of the land of Israel. Uh, we didn't have this in the yeshiva literature, their brochure, but you know, 
Um, if you're living in Eretz Israel, you're keeping a mitzvah. It's an immense mitzvah. And in theory, it's usher to leave. It's sort of the way I describe it, like a proverbial Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like. Come to Derek. We have an elaborate weight room. I think it's something like that, right? They, uh, we have um, <laughs> a pool. We have a pool that we visit once a year. And we um, go bowling once a year, maybe. Also, not always necessarily. Then, um, um, but we don't say in the brochure, the literature, come to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and by the way, once you're here, you may never check out. So uh, there is that, there is that uh, idea here, and that these tzaddikim should have known better. They shouldn't have forsaken their land for their own reasons. Hashem has many ways. He could have brought Rus into Klal Yisrael in another way. And then, it, it, that's the way you should look at it. And then they're hetero. But you need a heter. You need to know why you're going back into self-imposed exile, as we like to call it. Um, I know people, since you asked the question, I know people who are living here <coughs> from Made Aliyah from America, and they asked their Rav, they wanted to go back and visit her parents, and uh, the Rav said no. Showed them a little nachas, showed them the grandchildren, all the rest of the Rav said no. You're in Eretz Yisrael doing bigger mitzvahs right now. Um, it's case by case. There are times, absolutely, it's called for to leave. There are Gemaras that indicate that. But generally speaking, you're doing the right thing. Ah, you might have grounds to leave. Maybe you can't make a proper ponasa. Maybe you need to fulfill mitzvahs there, like getting married or learning Torah in a way perhaps you can't do here. Maybe it's too dangerous here, although that one is usually rejected as a possibility. Uh, the first, the first are more viable options. But but you realize the whole your whole way of looking at it is fundamentally um, you know changed when you see you know I'm supposed to be here, and everywhere else is vidi uh, evid kind of a life. As Rabbi Yehuda Levi also said, the author of the Kuzari, he said, uh, wherever I'm going, I'm going to Eretz Yisrael. My heart is in the, uh, my, my, myself, excuse me, is in the west, but my heart is in the east. And that's, that's the way we're supposed to be thinking about it. I misquoted, it was Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlov who actually said that, that um, everywhere I'm going, I'm going to Eretz Yisrael. I mean, it's not just the Balu Kuzari, and it's not just Rabbi Nachman. It's all the Jews who know everything and recognize this is the center of gravity. And this is where we belong. And Eli Melech and his sons are punished accordingly. Um, Rus and Orpah, we know, are the daughters of Eglon. That we talked about earlier today. Um, they were, they clung to Naomi out of devotion to Hashem. They recognized in Naomi a great tzaddikis, a great human being. And they were drawn to that. You know, like we're supposed to be drawn to the tzaddikim. Remember the, one of my major themes, uh, it, it, Find the tzaddikim, find the Talmud Chachamim and cling to them. They will be your, your role models. You will learn from them. And if you can't find any, live in a cave. Paraphrasing the Rambam in Hilchos Deos, Perik Vav, Halacha Aleph and Beis. Um, these women, Rus and Orpah, are so, have such mysterious nefesh. They're so uh, dedicated that they cling to Naomi even in poverty, even... And think about this. These are princesses who grew up in the lap of luxury. Now they're reduced to poverty. They don't even have shoes on their feet. And they walk after Naomi on the road, and Naomi tries to turn them back. And, what's that? Hold on. So she, 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 she attempts this a couple times. Initially, Orpah refuses. Orpah being a, also a tzedekis, a righteous woman who is motivated very much L'shem Shemaim. 
But Naomi persists. She says, you're young. You have your lives ahead of you. Go get remarried. You stick to me. What? And she said, do you think I still can, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have other sons that I can give you as husbands? I can't help you. Ultimately, you're right. She persuades Orpah. She doesn't persuade Rus. Rus clings to her famously. Um, Rus converts. Rus is, of course, an embodiment of the Tariag mitzvos of the 606 mitzvah, excuse me, of the, of the 613 mitzvahs, Rus in Gematria. How's your math? Can somebody do quick math? 606. Very nice. 606. 606. And she was already fulfilling the Sheva mitzvahs B'nai Noyach. Because she was, she was a Goya. She was not Jewish. So the 7 plus the 606, she already embodied 613 mitzvahs. Uh, you know the seven, the seven Noahide laws? We talked about them here, right? Quick review, what are they? Akiva? Don't eat a live animal, don't kill a self-reported system. Hold on, let's do this methodically. Do you remember the mnemonic I gave you? No. Yeah, Arya, do it, you got it. Oh, but you're doing it by show of hands. What does this mean? No, no, no. Oh, I thought this was right. I, oh, oh, okay, because this is a trick. Do you remember this? The big three, Yaharag Val Yavor, what are the big three? Don't kill, don't steal, no adultery. Avodah Zara, and adultery is not quite precise. Excuse me, Gilea Rios refers to all the prohibition, prohibitions around intimacy. Oh, Aleph, hold on, hold on, let's do this methodically. Aleph, base, Gimel, Dalit. Avram in it's eating a limb from a live animal. What's base? It's a euphemism. It's the opposite of what it sounds like. It's Birkas Hashem, which really means the opposite. Gimel, stealing, stealing Gezel, and Dalit, the, the one positive court system. So she was she was careful in everything that she needed to be careful in. I said that Gilei Rayos, Shvichus Dami, That's three plus Aleph Bet Gimel Dalit, and then you're set. Okay. Um, Orpa turns away. In fact, in her name, what does she turn? Her Oref. What's an Oref? Amkshe Oref. A stiff-necked people were called. Oref means back of the neck. She literally turns her back to Naomi. And the Medrash tells us as follows. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know this? It's shocking. Oso Laila, Shapirsha Orpa, Michamosa, Nisarvuba Gaya Shel Meabne Adam. That same night that Orpa, you have to remember, she's living on an exalted spiritual level. The same night she turns away from Naomi, she go, she's together with a battalion of a hundred men. And then the, the Medrash asks, Va'af kelev echad. There was even a dog. Don't ask. I have to spell that out, Aryeh. Please don't make me. hundred men and a dog, says the Medrash. Okay? That's the Medrash too, Elon. The... Uh, and, and, and it's shocking, and you have to wonder, what's going on? How can a woman who's leading this life of Kedusha fall, how the mighty have fallen, fall so hard? She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite, so you want to say it's in the genes? That's one shot. Okay, I accept that. Um, I want to go with Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the holy uh, Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, who has a wonderful, wonderful essay on the subject. I'm going to just give you a quick synopsis. She, like others, like like the son of Shlomi Sabas Divri, and like... We'll compare it with Shlomo and the positive. Shlomo's the positive example. What happens is, think about this, talk about insights into human psychology. Picture Orpah. She's immersed in Kedusha. And then she leaves. Can you picture yourself like this? 
when a person's left to their own resources, she never converts. All the Yetzirah now comes at, out and attacks in full force. It's what happens when a person loses their identity. She loses her identity. She has all that spiritual power, but now when it's unharnessed and not used for goodness, you ever hear this expression, Chazal, the greater the Tzadik, the greater the Sahara. Because when you are totally aligned with the Kaddish Baruch and you have all that immense spiritual power to serve Hashem, the minute you take the harness off, you remove Tyra from it, all you're left with is the intensity, is the potency, and then you put it in the hands of the Sahara, a hundred men and a dog. And she was insatiable. There was nothing that was going to help her. From her Pritzus, from her Pritzus, she will beget a son who will beget another son who will beget a son by the name of? Goliath. Goliath is the great-grandson of Orpah. Her sister, Ruth, has another great-grandson by the name of David. Pay attention to the spiritual connection and the link of the, of the heritage, how the, the two um, they, the sisters who were united uh, in holiness, when they literally, they, their paths forked and split um, would ultimately lead to the, the, uh, the battle, the encounter between uh, David and Goliath. Um, Rus, on the other hand, we see is totally loyal. She famously turns to Naomi, she says, Ki el asher telchi eleich uva asher talini alin amech ami velokaich elokai. Sometimes the Pesukim are so rich, they just defy any good translations, but I'll try anyway. She says, uh, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lie down, I will lie down. Your nation is my nation. Your God is my God. Here's a woman who really is a model of the proper gerus, the proper uh, conversion. Um, and we've seen then many righteous converts. We'll see many others in history. Sometimes the ger is the ultimate Jew having traveled the greater distance. Yes. You want to say that the nature of the pasuk indicates she does it to follow Naomi, and that's not Chazal's reading. They say that Naomi was her mentor, and we're allowed to have mentors. That's a good thing. But there's no. But notice she even puts Naomi under the rubric of a Kaddish Baruch Hu Elokaiich Elokai. Your God is my God. And that's the bottom line. That's how they read the Pasuk. Um, Boaz was a Shofet. His last seven years, um, during his last 70 years, he, we learned a lot of halachas from him. We learn that um, there's a minhag to use Hashem's name when we greet others. There's a, um, we learn the whole category of gerus from, from, from Boaz, from this episode. We learn the episode of Yibum. Not that it's the first time we're learning it. Certainly the Torah includes it. But we learn a lot of the details of how Yibum is done uh, through the story of Rus and Boaz. Uh, a lot of different things. In fact, there are all kinds of famous psukim and Rus. When you go out to a restaurant or a falafel stand next... Look at the lashon of the um, of the kashrus certificate. It says usually vizos letuuda, and this is a certification. That's a pasuk that we have in Sefer Rus, as of course our famous. We just mentioned them. Our famous um, generic anonymous person. We mentioned him earlier, Ploni Almoni. 
is the, is the quintessential, as we've already seen in the Gemara, the Makom Ploni, Ish Ploni, right? That's, that's, a, that's another thing that we learned from Rus. Um, we learned, we learned um, there's an Isser of marrying Moabite men, but we learned from here that there's no Isser of marrying the women. That's why Boaz could ultimately marry Rus. Now, he had previously 30 sons and 30 daughters. But the night that he marries Rus, the Medrash tells us that he um, neglects to invite another gadol. He neglects to invite another gadol by the name of Manoah. And because he doesn't, and he doesn't invite him because he's concerned, this is interesting, Jesse just brought this up in Opan, he's concerned that um, Manoah shouldn't come, Manoah was childless, couldn't reciprocate the, uh, the, the occasion, couldn't invite uh, uh, Boaz to his kid's wedding, so Manoah was left off the list and he's punished and um, all of his children die. He's 80 years old when he marries Rus, who's 40 years old, um, and he marries Rus. They're together that night, and the next day he dies. It's all clearly and obviously Minashamayim. The world was uh, created so that Boaz, who descends from, direct line from Yehuda, should marry Rus, a direct line from Moab, and that they should, they should ultimately be able to beget a child, Oved, who, uh, who ultimately becomes um, Yishai's father, who then is David's father, as the, as the Sefer ends. I'm not familiar with any story about Ovad. Oved. Yishai we know a little bit more, mostly because he's, he's ranked as Tzadik, but there's also, mostly his distinction is being David's father. That's how we hear about him. There is a place in Hebron, it's true. If you go to Hebron, Ilan, you've been there? You're, the, you're, you're going to be interested in this comment. If you go up to what's called Tel Rumeda, the biblical archaeological tell on the hill, there is right near there, right near an army outpost, the tradition, I guess what's called the traditional grave sites of Yishai and Rus. Anybody been there? Yishai and Rus. And I, I, I'll assert to you that I don't know that they're not the graves of Yishai and Rus, but it doesn't make much sense to me. There's no basis for it. We have no tradition of their being buried there. What are they even doing in Hebron when their base was more clearly Beit Lechem? That's where um, Naomi's family, where Boaz's family, where David's from is Beit Lechem. So none of, it tend, none of it seems to follow, but okay, there are all these traditions. Say, yeah, what's that? Oh, oh, oh. So if you're on the, on the subject of Beit Lechem and birthplaces, many years later, a group of people who are terribly insecure about their, the, the, the origins of their supposed Lord and Savior, uh, they call themselves Christians, um, they have a problem justifying him as Mashiach. A lot of the story doesn't check out, so they try to buttress it with all kinds of details to make him seem more legitimate in their eyes and in general in the Jewish people's eyes. Otherwise, one of the big kashis, I mean, one of the many, many kashis you could ask about their fables is what is a Jewish woman, a pregnant Jewish woman who lives in Nazareth all the way in the north, what's she doing in these dangerous times traveling down late Second Temple period, traveling all the way down to Beit Lechem to give birth to a baby, which itself is dangerous, only to then return immediately to Nazareth. You know, there's a better solution for you, lady. Give birth in Nazareth. What do you need to be in Beit Lechem for? So many of the Christian scholars, I'm not even talking about the Jewish scholars, the Christian scholars themselves 
believe that the disciples cooked up this whole thing about Yashka being buried, being born in Beit Lechem as a way of giving him legitimacy and connecting him with David Melech, who of course is the prototypical Mashiach and who will get the Mashiach and it was a stamp of legitimacy on Yashka. But it doesn't make much sense, I agree with you. Um, we find two more judges, again, no comment, and the no comment is meant to understand, hold, uh, go ahead. Eglon, I don't know, I'm sure it's something you look up, I don't have that number. Why, why would it matter? Right, also some longevity here. Right, unless they were late, late in life children, yeah, maybe they lived long lives, not... A lot of these numbers are hard to parse out, except we know that the Tanakh had lots of people with long lives. The next two judges come and go without comment, which is usually a sign of their greatness. Nothing to say, that must mean that they were pretty good. Um, one is named Elon of Zvulun, who judges for 10 years. The other is Avdan, who judges for 8 years. And then we find, arguably among the most um, intriguing of the judges... A judge by the name of Shimshon from the tribe of Dan, who judges for 20 years. He's identified as Dan as well in the Psukim. He is unique. And to connect him with the previous story, his father Menoach was a contemporary of Ibsan of Boaz. Um, Menoach and his wife um, are, don't have children, she's barren. Her name is uh, her, her name is not included. She's Ashes Manoach, but the Gemara and Baba Basra, just like we learn about Avram's mother, is identified there. So the Gemara, the Gemara there tells us her name is, and you can name your daughters this, Slalponi. Um, they, there's a fantastic scene uh, where the Davin and the Malach, an angel, comes to them and performs miracles and promises that they will conceive a, that she will conceive a son. The son will defeat the Plishtim, who are the big enemies for the Jews, the Philistines. Um, but it says on condition that he's raised as a Nazir, as a Nazarite. Um, usually, a Nazir, if a person takes a vow to be a Nazir, Stam Nazirus Shloshim Yom, if a person doesn't specify, most people are, are Nazirites for 30 days. Shimshon, what we call Nazir Shimshon, he's a Nazir for 30 days. Excuse me, for all of his lifetime, from the womb. Um, and it's, it's got some differences. In fact, our Gemara is going to list some of the differences. He has certain things that he, he's exempt from, but certainly he's not, he's not supposed to cut his hair and not partake of any, 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 any wine or grape products. Dead people be hard to avoid considering how it's true. It's a good point. He's different. He's different. What, Ilan? No, he's what's called Nazir Shimshon, and it's unique. Who else has a similar kind of Naziros in the Tanakh? Shmuel. Shmuel also is... is, uh, is Shmuel the Navi also as from the womb. Well, actually, he was more famous. He was famous even before there was a street named for him. No, really, yeah. Um, so Shimshon is born, and he is... Unique, he's unlike any of the judges in the following ways. Hashem never speaks to him. It's unusual. He's a great leader, but he never, never speaks directly to Hashem. He never unifies the nation. Remember, to picture Dvorah. But he, he never unifies the nation. 
it's an amazing story. Uh, we're going to start it today. We're not going to finish it. He apparently functions purely from this inner strength. He's not aware of it at the, at, from the outset. Clearly it's a miracle, but he's not even aware of what kind of strength he has. Listen to what the Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara there tells us that he is the head of his generation's Chachamim. He's a wise man, unparalleled in his time. So much so he judges the Jews. He's compared with Aviyam Sheba Shemayim. The Gemara in Sota says, like their father in heaven. Um, he is very modest. He never asks for favors, never asks for anybody to even so much as fetch something for him, which as a shofit, you can imagine, he really would be entitled to do that, but he never wanted to, uh, you know, take it, take it, t- you know, take any uh, advantage of anybody. Well, he wasn't known as a shofit, though. He was the only shofit who was a lone shofit. That's right. He seemed to have, I mean, I don't like to use the word rogue because it implies something negative, and he's very positive, but right, he's, he, he seems to be completely independent, totally self-owned, lone soldier, absolutely true. That's right, and he, he, he takes them on on his own. His base team, though, Chazal fill in, you know, we don't see this in the Psukim, but that's why we need Chazal to fill in the background. Ilan, are you with me still? Ilan? The thing about Medrash, and the thing about Chazal in general, and, and this I'm going to hit hard because I just think it's true. From a Torah perspective, you do not understand the Psukim unless you understand what Chazal has to say about it. And in this level, you got to see, like when Chazal are adding here about Shimshon, I'm going to wind down in a minute. Um, when, when Chazal is saying all these lo- um, lofty things about Shimshon, what they're really trying to point out is it's not what meets the eye. He was an immense Talmud Chacham. He had a base team. Klal Yisrael, in fact, uh, you know, saw him out widely for his Psak Halacha. So much so, the Yerushalmi tells us that his base team was on the level of Moshe's, Aaron's, and Shmuel's. Okay, that's, that's in the positive. And now, the same person, I'm introducing him, and we're going to have to probe him a little bit more deeply on Sunday. The same person, this great immense leader of the Jews, now listen to the Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, tells us that he had such a lust, he had such an uh, uncontrollable taiva, um, he's compared to Amnon, we're going to meet Amnon, Zimri, if you remember Zimri, with uh, Cosby, but, but uh, Cosby, uh, the, the, the Moabite, he is... The word pa'amon recurs in the psukim. He's like a bell going back and forth, swinging lefa'amon, swinging back and forth between the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, of his, of, his, of his wisdom, of his exalted status, and the tuma of the plishtim with all of their uh, immodesty and their perversions and their women. Um, the Rambam tells us, you know, it's not as bad as it looks. Every one of those women converted before he married them. Don't think that he did anything wrong there. His error, the Rambam said, was that he didn't realize that they hadn't accepted Torah sincerely, but he tried. He did his best. Um, still, we'll see that he um, wasn't really uh, in control of his passions as we're supposed to be, and that will be his undoing. So we'll meet young Shimshon and we'll ask some riddles. His whole life is a riddle. We'll talk about his, uh, metaphorically, where Shimshon uh, plays a major role to, in the world today. But the Josh Hashem will have to pick that up on Sunday. Yeah?